Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. But I also feel like in order to to get better at storytelling, I have to like keep living a life alongside it. And I have to like push myself to have adventures and to leave Los Angeles. I think it's very important to leave LA because LA becomes something of its own thought bubble, especially this industry and its demands and what it thinks is interesting. Los Angeles as a whole feels very much like a heat seeking missile to me. And the center of that is like constantly moving around and all that feels like a bit of a distraction. And I, and I feel like I have to constantly try to rip myself out of the, that focus and be like, okay, now I'm going to go over here and spend time researching this or understanding this or getting to know these people. And so otherwise I think at some point, if you stop living a life, a life of risk and failure and, and adventure and alongside your storytelling life, eventually your storytelling becomes only about the art of storytelling. That was Britt Marling. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We have returned to the normal schedule of putting these out on Sunday morning. I hope your Sunday is going well. I hope your week is going well if you're not listening to this on Sunday. I've said it before on the show and I also mentioned it in the conversation you're about to hear, but having people on that I have a familiarity with, a friendship with, is always very challenging and nerve-wracking to me. I would much rather do a 
Vincent D'Onofrio, Norman Lear, I don't know you at all kind of situation over having someone I call a friend on the podcast. Britt is here because, one, she is brilliant and lovely and, and, and smart and one of the most talented people I know working in this space right now. She's also here because season two of her show called The OA returns to Netflix on March 22nd. Here's a bit from the trailer. Nothing happens the way I imagined. Let me, Miss Ozerova. I live here. We traveled into another dimension. Into other versions of ourselves. <laughs> Do you understand what we're on the edge of here? It's godlike, Prairie. Before we recorded, I got an email from the good people at Netflix in which they specified what we can and cannot talk about when it comes to plot details of the OA. Consequently, I'm not going to explain the show here, and uh, in all honesty, we don't really talk about the show in the podcast. We talk about what the show has done to Brit, and what the show has done for her, and what it's like to operate this big machine that is making a television program for Netflix. But when it comes to plot specifics, we just avoid all that. In short, it's a show that demands your attention. I also want to say, if this is your first time listening to Talk Easy, one, thank you for being here, and two, you should know that the podcast doesn't generally sound like the conversation you're about to hear. It usually sounds mostly like this interview with Brit. But Britt and I have known each other for five or six years now, and uh, we had not properly caught up in probably two or three years. And so this episode is that in a lot of ways. It's two people reconnecting after a significant period of time. Consequently, there is a lot of me in this episode, in part because the conversation warranted that. Also because Britt has this great tendency to ask you questions, even when the questions are directed towards her. I think she's very generous and curious like that. So if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, this is really fascinating, but I really wish there was less Sam talking, do not worry. Most of these episodes do not have as much me in them, but uh, this is what you get today. It is what it is. It is personally my favorite episode that we've done this year. I think after we were done, Britt mentioned that our conversation was kind of wandering and elliptical in the ways that most conversations are with people that you know in your life. And I don't know if that plays on a podcast necessarily. I know the people at NPR would tell me, even this introduction really needs to be trimmed and I need to cut the fat of this interview. But you know what? We're not NPR. I'm not Terry Gross. Much respect to both of those institutions. but. This is its own thing, and uh, when it's all said and done, my hope with this episode and every episode that you leave this conversation knowing a little bit more about the person I'm talking to, and maybe in this case, a little bit more about me. Anyway, that is my spiel. It was an absolute joy recording this and talking to Brett, and if you have Netflix, I said it like if... Since you have Netflix, be sure to keep your eyes open for the OA 
It airs March 22nd. And uh, what her and Zal Mangala are doing, and a whole bunch of wonderful people are doing, is really, really special and unprecedented. So give her your time, give her your attention, give her your love. And now, finally, here is Brent Marlin. I want to start with this. Give me um, what we were talking about. Where you're at right now. February's about to end. The show's going to come out. Mm. Honest feedback in terms of your day-to-day and how you're feeling about this thing that you've been trying to put out into the world. Oof, it's hard. Um, I think when you've been working so hard for a single narrative for so long, like the OA has occupied my time every day, all day, yeah, seven days a week for the last like five years. I, I opened an email up last night and I have it from 2014 November, wow. the pilot script. Oh my God, that's right. I remember I sent you the pilot script. Yeah. That was before we ever made anything. Yeah. And I remember you read it and you were like, this is good. This is going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to, don't, don't you stop You were like, doing do this. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that you needed my encouragement. No, I but I did. I took your encouragement very seriously. We weren't sharing the work with many people at the time. I mean, and that's still true. You know, we've just finished part two. A handful of people have been in the edit room to see it. And then it's like suddenly on a platform all over the millions. world. Millions. <laughs> and it's a little daunting. But no, to answer the question, honestly... I think when you are in this alternate reality you've created and you're so wholly consumed by it day in, day out for five years straight and no other narrative enters the picture. It's not like I've had time to act in something else. You know, if I'm not acting, I'm writing. If I'm not writing, we're in the edit. The show running responsibilities are huge. And so when you get a break, we've just finished part two. Literally, we were doing the sound mix on chapter eight yesterday suddenly it's like the rug gets pulled out from underneath you. Like every day your alarm has gone off and every hour has been filled with trying to push this boulder up the hill. And then finally it's up the hill and it crests and it's rolling down. And now your alarm goes off. Is today day one of the alarm? Basically, basically. (laughs) This is the first day I haven't been in the edit all day or reviewing visual effects or... And really the feeling you have is oh my God, who am I? And what do I do in a day? Like you suddenly have to recreate your whole pattern of meaning because the pattern of meaning in your life has been fulfilled by the story. Mm. And it's it's exhilarating to get your life back, but there's also an intense postpartum. It's like, I, I think especially on the acting level, you know, you embody this character for a period And then you have to, you maintain it or I maintain it in the edit because I'm always thinking about reshoots. You know, I can't cut my hair. I can't bite my nails like I normally do. You know, I can't, you're keeping yourself like a racehorse taut, ready to run. And then... I never thought you'd describe yourself as a racehorse. It's a little bit like that. You know, I think of acting as a kind of emotional athletics. 
it really is a physical sport. If you're all in. If you're all in, that like a that a spiritual emotional thing comes through. But man, yeah, it's it's hard to get your life back and then have to figure out what to do with it again. <laughs> I can't believe this is day one. Yeah, I can't believe one. this is the first morning you have. Yeah, you're catching me in a weird moment. And Sam. we're doing this <laughs> after not having seen each other for years. Who better to take me through the bends <laughs> of returning to the surface of the earth than Sam? You know, I I think there's someone better, but I'll do the best I can. You know, I've said this before on the show is that I I really don't love having people on that I know already mm. because there's something very visceral and nerve-wracking about being with a stranger mm. and having to talk and and you and I could just as easily turn this off and go and talk right true and I can't do that with like Bill Pullman no 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 but I do I do want to go back to this this memory uh that I remember we talked about before which is you were working at Goldman Sachs and you were working an insane amount of hours. Yeah. You were trying to and starting to figure out that you didn't want to do this. And one weekend, Zal and Mike come to New York and say, hey, we're doing this 48-hour uh, film festival. Can you do it? Do you want to do it? Because we're in your uncle's apartment. So we're going to do it. <laughs> I can't believe you remember this so well. Uh, you know, I yeah. tried to do some research <laughs> Walk me through what happens here and, mm. and your memories of that now, because mm. you're now on the other side of this show. Mm. But I think it's important to figure out and remember where it all came from. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I was just thinking as you were talking about Goldman, that it's funny because I work the same hours, the yeah. same daunting hours, but probably with better people, but, and, and you're doing a thing that you love to do. So somehow it's invigorating but yeah, I remember that time I had studied economics in school and I remember a friend of mine being like, well, now's the time when you get your, you know, you try to get your internships and you try to get your job and you interview for these things. And I sort of followed what everybody else was doing, found myself at a bank, thought it was going to be about economics. And in my head, it was a very romantic version. I mean, the version that I was living in college was like, you're in the library late at night, wrestling with these proofs, trying to figure out how to make the most elegant construction mathematically. You know, no experience. I really like that variables. that's romantic to you. To me, it to was. To me, it's like, oh no. But, but you know, <laughs> screenwriting is really similar, actually. I think of screenwriting as a kind of economic proof. It's not a novel, you know, you're trying to, you can't digress, you know, endlessly. You're, you're doing, everything is part for whole, metonymy. You know, what's a single moment or scene that can stand in for a lifetime inside a relationship? So those hours in the library, like learning to think that way about not embellishing, but getting really specific and pointed about, about variables and how they come together to equal something. That was all really cool. But then I went to a bank and like that, wasn't what I was doing there. Like day in, day out, I felt like a kind of, like I was in my cubicle with right. a bunch of financial models. I wasn't getting to invent the financial models. I was just plugging numbers into those models to create outcomes that would lead to successful pitches on companies to do various mergers and acquisitions. And there were a lot of really interesting people around, smart people, but I sort of felt like, what am I doing really? How old I don't, are you there? I don't love money, you know. You're like 22, 23. Yeah. I think what Mike Cahill and Zalbot Monglage, you know, we met 
at Georgetown. We'd been making short films there. I'd been making short films on my own in like an experimental film class. And they came up one weekend and they were waiting for me outside on my lunch break at Goldman. And I come down from the 14th floor and I'm in like a full suit with like alligator pumps and like the hair slicked back. I'm sure like, it's a great look. Pearl earrings. No, it really isn't. And a briefcase, you know, so serious. I've got my photo like, proof of this. Film. I, I, I hope there's not. <laughs> got like a Blackberry in one hand and like a coffee in the other. And I'm manic and You're I in it. haven't slept for four days. And yeah. I like that you did the hair too. It's important to be serious with your hair if you're trying to convince people you're serious and you're like a child. I haven't done a good job of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they saw me. They were waiting for me in the courtyard. And Saul just sort of, you know, tilted his head and looked at me. And he was like, what character are you playing? Who is this person? And then they told me, they were, they were like, we're in New York. We're doing the 48-hour film festival. You know, we know you're really busy. You don't have to be involved, but we are camped out at your uncle's apartment and we are planning on shooting there. So you might as well be in the scenes. And so we spent this entire weekend, after I hadn't slept all week working on this IPO, we spent the entire weekend filming this sh short film for 48 hours. We turned it in. I don't even think it was particularly good. But I remember thinking that by juxtaposition, I was like, okay, I can beat my brains out you know, plugging numbers into financial models, or I can beat my brains out storytelling with these people I love, mm. whose minds inspire my mind, whose way of seeing the world opens my way of seeing the world. It made it clear to me that like, I think for some reason I understood my mortality in that moment. I know that sounds dramatic, but I mean it. sounds it, dramatic. That seriously, like I, I understood that life was so limited and that I was being asked to sell the hours of my life to make a living, right? Mm. And so how are you going to sell those hours of your life? Like, did, what are you going to... Did you previously think you had to? Did I previously think I had to... Sell, sell your, your hours? No, I don't think... In college, you're sort of in this incubator. I sometimes think this about American youth. We're so sort of protected, you know, and if you're lucky enough, privileged enough to go to university. It's this like further protection. Mm. It's almost like this amusement park ride through academia. And it's amazing to spend four years reading and thinking and discussing ideas. But then you get booted out into the real world. Right. And m more often than not, you're clocking in, clocking out, waiting to live your real life on a vacation you may or may not get now that you're bringing your phone with you, you know. And I think I suddenly just felt like, whoa, 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 I'm doing this all wrong. Like my life is going to go by in a blink. It's going to be so fast. And, and I think p part of this too is that Mike and I had made a documentary hmm. in Havana. And so I'd spent some time living there and found when we were making that, you know, for very little money, that I didn't need much to be happy. Mm -hmm. Like I could be on a mattress on a floor like eating rice and beans. But if I was make, doing something I loved every day, I was fed in a different way and it was invigorating. And then everything fell away. I didn't need to make money. I didn't need to be hugely successful. I didn't need to have something to call my parents or friends and tell them I had done. I just needed to do this thing I loved, which was storytelling and pursue that wherever, wherever it took me. And and that was, so that was sort of my way out of one world and into another. It took you here. 
Took me here, yeah. What did your parents make of it when you moved out west? I think that they were nervous. For you? Yeah, and I understand. I think they were afraid. They grew up in a time when you still trusted the institutions. You still really believed in corporations. You thought a, a great corporation was going to give you a good life. I had your back. Yeah, I had your back. Of course, my generation, we suddenly realized that the Fruit Loops we'd grown up eating for breakfast were poisoning us, that like a lot of the antibiotic prescriptions we'd been given for our skin or for this, that, and the other were, were poisoning our organs. You know, we, we came to really distrust corporations. And yeah. so I think that was a generational divide with my parents. And so I think when I came out here, they were like, okay, go there if you must, but go work at a corporation yeah. and then like slowly move your way up. Stability. They just Stability. wanted to be yeah. stable. Safety. But I didn't see it as safety. I saw that as the opposite of safety. Mm. That scared me. Right. You know, I wrote down that when we first spoke five years ago, you said, I think if you keep your life small, then you never have to make choices you don't want to make. I was wondering, because you're talking about only needing a mattress. Right. Where do you think that came from? Maybe part of it was making that documentary in Cuba. I think part of it was also just living that way. You know, I I live in a small place now, you know. I don't have a swimming pool. I only have one bathroom. The kitchen is largely taken up by the washing mm. and drying machine, you know, do like you still not have a couch? I did get a couch. <laughs> For the longest time, for the longest time in every place, I have only had cushions on the yeah, floor. I always Sometimes thought that like was a bed insane. Sheet. <laughs> I thought this is, I, I like this person, but she's insane. <laughs> I think, you know, part of it might be that I was so invested in the imagined world in trying to figure out how to better tell stories that I just wasn't in the physical world as much. But this, may, uh, it's interesting. What? It may be true of like, you know, one of the things we found when we were location scouting for part one of the OA, we were in upstate New York. And before that, we had done some research in the Midwest. A lot of the kids' bedrooms had nothing in it. And at first I was like shocked. I was like, where are the collages and the posters? And where's mm. all the knickknacks? And then I realized that like my generation had used those things to demonstrate personality to people coming in. Right. Like your room was your outward facing space. Right. I mean, now that's online for people. Oh God. Like their room is their Instagram. I, I, this is, is going to get depressing. Is that, but I just, I just mean that I, I don't know. There are lots of different ways in which maybe we're not thinking as much about physical spaces anymore. Mm. But you were very okay with having very little and living minimally. I think it's important to not be on the hook, you know, because I think that's how you get stuck in your life. It's like you've overextended yourself. You have all these mortgages and all these things, multiple houses, boats, you know, and suddenly you have to constantly be doing things to support that existence. Mm. And for me, I guess I've wanted to feel like Unattached. at any moment I could say, well, now I'm going to just spend a year hand drawing a graphic novel <laughs> on my couch <laughs> and I could do it. You, you totally know? could. Yeah. Has that applied to people though? How do you mean? 
I mean, I find it, at least in my life, especially romantically, that the more I, like, become, you know, we were talking about, like, the introverted, extroverted part mm-hmm. of us, the more I, like, really dive into the former, I push it away and I push everything away mm. in ways that I don't even know if I can entirely control, even though it's conscious. But I was wondering, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe perhaps the same is for you, which is the more you do this thing, the more it demands from you. Yeah. The more everything else is rendered less important. Well, I think certainly when you're pursuing something difficult and it requires so much of your focus to figure out how to navigate it, let alone do it well, I think you're right that like a lot of other things can fall away. I think part of it is, you know, for me, it's all about Monglich and I have been working together now for so many years inside making the OA. And I think that friendship, the profundity of that friendship and that knowingness of each other has been a place that has carried us through some really hard times where, you know, you're right. It's like, when we're shooting, you know, and we shoot, you know, for me, it's always a 14 hour day and it's five days a week. And then we're casting and location scouting on the weekend. And that is a six month period. Basically you really, you cannot do anything. I mean, you can't, I have found myself stealing toilet paper from the soundstage because I know I don't have time to like stop and get toilet paper on the way home. (laughs) I mean, it's that level of absurd. And so you don't see anyone and you have to have friends and family who are really understanding that there's this like period of your life where you, you go completely off the grid and you're inaccessible. And even if you were accessible, if you talked on the phone, you know, some part of you is occupied in this imagined universe. In a way you can't even explain. In a way that you can't even explain. But I think that I am really lucky because Zal and I have had each other inside that. So, Mm. Yeah, it's not as lonely. It's not as lonely, no. That's really nice. And I think it's how we've been able to take some really big risks is because we've been able to do it together. Mm. And so there's something inside that that's, really powerful partnership you know that kind of collaboration i don't mean to compare you and i to jordan <laughs> that's a great way to start a sentence <laughs> i just want to hear where you're gonna go with it <laughs> oh look we gotta have fun yeah. but the thing i loved about him is that he his mindset was you know i just don't care about being liked by people i just don't care to, mm-hmm. to maintain at least on from the outside to maintain like niceties because to him, the only thing that mattered aside from gambling and drinking, which mattered a great deal to him, but they were all tied to the same competitive spirit. He just wanted to win. And then in our thing, which is that we want to make and we want to tell stories. It's not as competitive, although it is competitive. I don't know. It's pretty darn competitive. Yeah. But it's not as like, it's not as viscerally moment-to-moment competitive as a basketball game. That's true. It is unfortunately more psychologically and mentally <laughs> training. I'm going somewhere here. The point is, the sacrifice is the same, which is that the people around you that aren't in it, that aren't making it with you, and that aren't family, 
lovers and truly best friends, and even sometimes best friends, go by the wayside. And the question I'm asking myself that I'm going to ask you is, is it worth it? Mm. Is that too much? No, it isn't too much. I think it's a very fair question. You can answer it, and then I'll answer it. Okay, that's fair. I just want to hear yours first. <laughs> it's interesting because I was thinking, you're, you're talking about Michael Jordan, right? He's obviously this like sort of example of what we think of when we think of greatness. He wanted to be the best, and he was. Still, when you watch him, like when you watch clips of him moving, He's like the wind or a dancer. It's so fluid. He moves in ways that like, I think he makes some dancers just look in awe. It's like, how? It's, It's breathtaking. It seems like he's defying all the limitations of the human form. And so we watch that and we're breathless. I see how he was after that. I don't know that I aspire to that same like sheer that will that it takes to like break the sound barrier. I love storytelling. I'm obsessed with it. I think constantly about how to get better at it. I mean, I can't stop. I'm doing it all the time. Like even if I go out to dinner with friends and I'm telling them some aspect of my day, I'm framing it as like, here's the status quo and here's the tear, the inciting incident. And then this happens and then this this leads up to this climax. Contextually, it means this. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm 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 clearly obsessed, you know. I it's like wonder a, what our friends think of us, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know. Overwhelming. Probably. Yeah. But I also feel like in order to to get better at storytelling, I have to like keep living a life alongside it. And I have to like push myself to have adventures and to leave Los Angeles. I think it's very important to leave LA because LA becomes something of its own thought bubble, especially this industry and its demands and what it thinks is interesting. Los Angeles as a whole feels very much like a heat seeking missile to me. And the center of that is like constantly moving around and Mm -hmm. all that feels like a bit of a distraction. And I, and I feel like I have to constantly try to rip myself out of the, that focus and be like, okay, now I'm going to go over here and spend time researching this or understanding this or getting to know these people. And so otherwise, I think at some point, if you stop living a life, a life of risk and failure and, and adventure and alongside your storytelling life, eventually your storytelling becomes only about the art of storytelling. I mean, I think that's why you see so many so many filmmakers eventually telling stories about right films about films films about films or, or about creation is because you're it's exactly what you're saying because well, you run out you run out and the only life you're living is this like oh god day-to-day um investigation of how how to get better than the apparatus you're caught inside of you mm. know because like think about bj armstrong for a second mm-hmm. I loved B.J. Armstrong. Most valuable. Remember when he was named the most valuable sixth player? You know, like he was the guy who wasn't in the starting yeah. group, but then he I'm got off the bench. I'm blown away that you mentioned B.J. Armstrong. He got off the bench. How did this happen? And he was like amazing. <laughs> I think B.J. Armstrong is as important to the team as Michael Jordan mm. and Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen and Phil. But people don't talk as much about B.J. Yeah. 
Are you BJ? <laughs> <laughs> in my dreams, Sam. In my dreams. <laughs> I can't believe you mentioned him. I'm, I'm like taken aback. Oh. I want to answer honestly. My genuine gut answer is I don't know yet. I hate to bring up my age, but I think it's it is fair to here is that I have not figured that out. You shouldn't. You're a child. <laughs> I'm you know, just kidding. You're not you know, trying to you're a young man. It's tough to be friends if I'm a child. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, but you're in your early 20s. At your age, I was working as a cinematographer yeah. on reality TV shows. MTV had this reality TV show called True Life. Uh-huh. Like True Life, I'm a cheerleader or True Life, I'm polyamorous. Oh, We actually did some interesting ones. Yeah. And it was actually a very interesting anthropology study of mm. the country and what people are thinking and where they're at. But I was working as a camera operator on that show when I was your age. It took me a long time to find some, figure out. Some semblance. Yeah. Yeah. I think also the second part of my answer is what choice is there? This is maybe a little like maddening, but I don't know if there's a choice. I feel like I have to. You know, when you're writing and you write like the first line of, of maybe a dialogue or an action and then your head goes okay if that happens well here's the next seven things you know that could happen and it's the same thing when it comes to a different kind of life away from making anytime i imagine doing law for example because right. my mom wanted me to be a lawyer i i think seven steps ahead and i think i can't right that's not gonna work right it's not gonna add up i think very similar to your sort of gut reaction you had in New York when you're making the, that short. Well, you were lucky you could think the seven steps ahead. I had to like live three of the steps. And then Did be you? Like, well, in the sense that like I went all the way there. I didn't just like sit in my dorm room and be like, hmm, seven steps ahead. Well, I, don't, I, don't, geez, I don't know if I was like that you, either. But you were. <laughs> I think anytime you're obsessed with something, it is there is a loneliness about that obsession. I think what I've tried to do in my life is like, understand i think the reason why i'm attracted to filmmaking as opposed to being a novelist mm. is that the novelist really is alone the filmmaker we're constantly building tribes families that are come together to be possessed by this narrative for a period and try to tell it to the best of their ability and that's why i bring up bj armstrong it's like bj armstrong is as important in the collaboration as Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen, like there was a reason the Bulls were able to do something extraordinary mm. for a period of time. And it wasn't about individualism. It was about a group of people who could anticipate each other's motions, who could feel where a teammate was going before the teammate got there, be there, like watching that. They wanted to be the best team ever. There was something kinetic about the way they understood and could anticipate and feel one another. And that, can happen inside filmmaking. I feel that all the time with Saul. You know, we'll be in a room by ourselves telling a story and we're just leaping around each other. You know, I can feel where his thoughts are going and then I go there and then mm. he can feel where I'm going and then he's there and we're we're a team. And then we invite a writer's room together and then we have a whole set and then we have a post process and, and that team just keeps expanding and no individual really matters. The ball in the hoop matters. And you're just beings like moving around together, mm. trying to get the ball in the hoop. 
Is there something you've learned now about making movies and, and, and you know, I know you don't want to call it television. I saw something about that, that you wish you knew in your 20s about making? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess what, how Zal and I tend to think about it, and I think people call it television, we're happy to call it television. We think of it as long-form storytelling because... I think the origin of TV was that its dramatic structures were designed to reach a height before commercial break. Mm -hmm. So it was narrative that was designed to sell you product, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, and here's a cliffhanger. And now isn't that so depressing? Here's the best detergent for your toughest stains. It's really and sad. This car will protect your children. And take we don't have to sell anything. And, you know, working at a tech company like Netflix, there really have been no narrative rules. Like they like the idea of taking risks. So sometimes we have a chapter that's 27 minutes. Sometimes we have a chapter that's 70 minutes. Like there it's the wild, wild west of storytelling. Yeah. It can literally be anything you can imagine. You've truly created and signed up for something <laughs> that I've tried to process. And I thought, I don't know if I could do that. It's pretty far out. I'm really impressed by you and the team and the ambition of it all. And I, and I mean that sincerely, I really don't know how I would do that. I would have to, I would have a hard time. What? You think? I don't think so, Sam. Well. It's just storytelling with the, the chains off. It's like yeah. somebody came into your room one day and was like, it doesn't just have to be an hour and a half to two hours. Here's the money. Here's the money. Like, let the story tell itself. I mean, we put the, the credit sequence 50 minutes in in part one mm -hmm. that's because that's where it needed to be i rewatched it last night and nobody i was like oh my god what no one told us we couldn't do that sam that's what's crazy is that cindy holland at netflix was like that's cool are you sure people aren't going to drop out because 50 minutes is usually where it something ends mm -hmm. we made a couple tweaks to make sure that wasn't going to happen and then she went to the legal department there and figured out how we could legally do that. I mean, I think that kind of help from a studio to break the rules and reinvent mm. structure is like unprecedented. Yeah, I was gonna say unprecedented. Yeah. The funny thing about storytelling is like we internalize so much of it as young people without even realizing it. Like you're lying in bed at night and your mom's reading you a story or your dad's reading you a story to fall asleep and you're internalizing narrative and structure and what are characters, what are their wants, mm. what are the conflicts, how do they come to fruition? And so maybe it's that by the time we, we reached the age as a generation where we are being allowed to tell the stories, we're being given the resources to tell the stories, so much of it has been patterned in us already. I think maybe part of it is as a woman in the world, the world isn't really designed by you for you in order to survive, you're constantly having to figure out ways to bend, break, go around rules that have been set up long before you ever arrived on the, the stage of being alive. And so maybe there's something about when you come to storytelling and you're writing for a female protagonist, you're literally inheriting structures that don't acknowledge her femininity, meaning like if she behaves like a man, you know, if you take like a classic action story and you take out the male hero and you put in a, f a female hero mm -hmm. and she largely 
apes the qualities that those narratives, what you've inherited from the narrative. The masculine qualities. Yeah, then that's fine. But I think if, if you're trying to dig your way out, if you're trying to find or touch something else, you have to invent new forms because the forms you're inheriting aren't really for you. D does that make sense? Like It does. It's like the Greek narratives, you know, all these ancient things through time, through the Western history of storytelling, don't really acknowledge women. And so then if you're going to try to write your way out of that, it makes you a rule breaker by nature, maybe. I don't know. I'm thinking this out in real time. I think that's that's good when people do that. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking about the people that you've written and that you've played. What do you make of the fact that I'm thinking about like sound of my voice and, and OA and, and even even to a degree another earth. Actually even maybe I origins. Wow, I <laughs> I had not thought about this. I had not even thought about asking this, but the characters, the central characters are in a way very not of this place. Godlike. Mm. Why do you think you keep coming back to that? That's funny. I don't know that I'd ever thought of it quite that way. I guess I had always thought of them as outsiders. I think that's how you present them. Like Rhoda is exiled. Maggie is living in a basement in the San Fernando Valley with this like weird group. Yeah. She both is and isn't special. You know, in some ways she's incredibly ordinary. And in other ways there's some something about her. That seems to be a, a lot of them, is that they, they oscillate back and forth between special and maybe normal. Yeah, like uh, unbearably, <laughs> so, you know. Unbearably normal. Karen, I'm thinking about Karen from My Origins, so, like, devoted to her work in the lab, and I guess with all of them, it, it feels to me a little bit, if I was going to try to find a through line, they seem to be women who want to believe or feel they are connected to something other. And by that, I just mean like whatever the unseen world is, whatever the inexplicable is, whatever wilderness is genuinely left in our souls. Like they want to be connected to that. They want to live through that. And yet life presents constant obstacles to that. You know, in Rhoda's case, it's like she's incarcerated she, you know, she commits a crime and is incarcerated. And in Karen's case, she's sort of stuck inside a marriage that is its own captivity a little bit. In Prairie's case, she's literally held captive. And yet even inside that space, she manages to find something inside herself by going on an inner journey that leads to a kind of freedom for them as a group, even though they're still stuck. Maybe that connects to a female journey in general, maybe. Captivity. Yeah. I remember reading a couple years ago this amazing book called Women Who Run With Wolves. And the author was saying that a lot of feminine knowledge, which is maybe more intuitive or instinctual, has sort of fallen away. Like those aren't the types of knowledge we trust anymore. We... As a culture, we value what is empirical, what is logical, what is linear, what can we see and hold. And mm. 
those other kinds of intelligence, bodily intelligence, have fallen away, emotional intelligence. And I think maybe a lot of these stories are about trying to excavate that. I mean, I can think of one example that comes to mind is, do you know this historian, Svetlana Alexievich? She's amazing. She wrote this book called Secondhand Time, amongst many others. And what's really interesting about her work as a historian is she's not talking. She's listening, which is very feminine art and instinct. Mm. She's, she's going all over Russia and interviewing bricklayers, young poets, housewives, students, former war heroes, and she's collecting all their narratives and she's collecting them the way you are, like in a kitchen, you know? I mean, we're in a kitchen right now. You guys can't see that. We're in a kitchen. And she's collecting them over the kitchen table and personal stories. And then she's weaving all of these together to tell a story about the fall of communism and the rise of capitalism in, a, mm. in this country and what it did to the collective soul of a people. That's a very feminine approach to eliciting narrative mm. and building narrative to, to listen rather than talk. And I guess I'm interested in that across the board. I'm interested in how, as more women find a place inside disciplines that have traditionally not made room for them, that we will see those disciplines change. And certainly storytelling is one of them. Like it's, it's pretty recent mm. to see women writing filmmaking, long form storytelling, creating, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. You know, I think you and I are both people who are probably best suited for listening. (laughs) I, I really find so I get so much out of it. And of course, these things that we're talking about, you know, they're not limited to gender. You know, everybody has a masculine and feminine expression inside Mm. of them. I just think culturally on the whole, we've been very encouraged to lean more into our masculine side. Why do you think that is? Gosh, that's a question, right, that goes so far back in time. That's such a good question. Was there ever a time when it was balanced? If it was balanced, what was the thing that threw it so far out of whack. I mean, I guess the thing I could point to most immediately is capitalism, like capitalism as a force Mm. believes profit above everything else. And it's a kind of linear march towards um, constantly expanding profit that it, it feels like that economic system has entered all of us, you know, and we animate and express as people living under that structure. And that isn't a structure that favors listening, slow dialogue and conversation. It it isn't a structure that favors elliptical thinking to eventually arrive at a center. And also, you know, I mean, capitalism and the patriarchy, of course, in much more obvious ways, hates the feminine. That seems good. (laughs) And by good, I mean an accurate answer, but a, a an unfortunate one. Yeah. But I'm so hopeful because I think about just the last couple of years, the, the different kinds of stories we see or the way in which things are opening. I mean, sometimes I think it's when things feel really dark. You always struck me as someone who was hopeful. Oh, I feel it so much, but not saccharine hopefulness. I feel like hope with like a razor blade, like a kind of sharp (laughs) kind of difficult. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. 
Um, and you know, it's not unearned. I think it's so hard to be genuinely, I'm not an optimist, you know, but I am hopeful in the sense that like, I think sometimes when things appear darkest, feel darkest, when you have to really acknowledge that how bad things are is when we get our act together collectively and start making small movements, you know, towards amassing mm. a bigger movement to change things. And I think storytelling is a huge part of that. And I think listening is a huge part of that. Has it been in some ways healthy to like burrow inside this show as we are in this clusterfuck of oh a time? Yeah, so much so. Embarrassingly. So I'm laughing because <laughs> I'm laughing because sometimes I like literally don't know what's going on. Right. Zal was saying to me the other day, he's like, could you at least just you know, whatever outlet you want, but could you at least just read some kind of newspaper? Keep a pace. We have a president whose name is Donald Trump. I heard about that. I heard that one. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? <laughs> I get the major highlights. It's just that... I get the New York Times update on my phone. You do? The bump. The no, That's the only notification I, I do on my phone. And how often do you open it and read it? Almost never. Yeah. But you're keeping up with the highlights that yeah, way. Yeah, I got the highlights. So like, what was the highlight of today? Did you look at the bump today? No, I woke up thinking I got to do this podcast with oh. Brit. I haven't <laughs> seen her in three years. I'm nervous. Genuinely nervous, actually. Because? This is like bordering on off microphone. Okay. <laughs> but this, you know what? This whole show is off microphone. But isn't that what makes it a great show? That you create the space for people to say things that are... Hard to say unless they're given the time to fumble through their own sticky thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's better when you say it than I say it. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'll, I'm going to be honest. I'll tell you why. This whole conversation, in a way, has been about like lessons learned uh. and and growth, and then like probably some part of that is stagnation because it's hard to avoid that. And thinking back about when we met when I was 19 and then reading some exchanges we had, mm. I thought there's some things I really would not have said. This makes it sound so much worse than it is. I but, know, I but, but it's more like the, when you're 19 or 20 and you were not to age you out, but you were 30, yeah. 31. I think I was very like earnest Oh, that. but earnestness is so good. <laughs> I do think, I think it is. I mean, I think there's so much, isn't there so much hatred right now for what is sincere or what is genuine? And you just have to ask yourself at some point, why? Why are we so obsessed with what is cool and cynical? Yeah. With like the guarded self that never do that. admits to real feeling. I just mean culturally as a whole. Like I think it's, and that of course the cultural thing comes from the personal. Like it's how we behave day-to-day -day with one another we don't take any emotional risk mm. gen generally speaking and yeah and i think at that time i think you and i both actually took in reading it over last night i was like oh we both took huge emotional risks and i i guess i felt it's vulnerable <laughs> it's really vulnerable and scary but Sam, I feel like that's where all the good stuff is in life. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to be any other way as a person. And I really hope that if you ever find me in this work, 
closing up, you know, throwing up the exoskeleton, like trying to be cool or cynical or nihilist. Mm -hmm. Nihilism is my least favorite thing because what, yeah. What? Well, it's just, what's the point, you know, like a story that offers up that in the end it's all meaningless. Is that really what we need right now? No. I mean, I think what we need from our storytellers is, and our artists and our thinkers and philosophers and poets and chefs and everybody's trying to figure out where to put meaning that is a more robust place than where the system has had us placing meaning, which is in like just buying more stuff, having more stuff, being more, more, more all the time, you mm. know? So for me, I hope we never stop being vulnerable people, risking things, asking big questions, failing to answer them, asking them again. A lot of failing. Yeah, I don't, I really don't want to, at least if you ever encounter me and I've stopped doing that, I hope you have the good sense to be like, <laughs> kick me out and say, go. My, Cause my other dream, you know, is to just go to Iowa and work at a public library. I remember this. This is my true dream and to just is, read and recommend books to people and I could see you doing that. Write some like bad short stories on the side and bad at first, good eventually. Maybe. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. You know, you have uh, this thing about you that I've I totally forgot because I haven't seen you. You are really supportive and like generous with your support but not in a way that feels false. But like right when I came in, and even when you emailed a few weeks ago, I was so, I was like, oh, that's right. That's why I really like this person. I was struck by it. There's not really much of a question here. It's more of a like, it's good to do that. And I forget to do that. I forget mm -hmm. to do that all the time. And I worry that I, I am sacrificing being a decent person in the world for wanting to make what I want to make and being so tunnel vision about it. Do you feel that right now that you're doing this? Yeah. I, I have a hard time believing you. What's a for instance? <laughs> like I just can't quite imagine it. I'm just being honest. Yeah. I mean, I understand the tunnel vision part. I get that. What because part do you not understand for me? I understand the tunnel vision part because you're not 19 years old at Sundance conducting very serious interviews with people and being taken very seriously at 19 mm -hmm. if you don't have a little bit of tunnel vision, you know? Yeah. So I, I understand that part, but... There's a part that's hard for you to believe. Do you really feel like you've abandoned people in that pursuit? Do you feel you've let people down? Some people, maybe. Yeah. I, I do, yeah, I do. Right. But maybe I'm just, I'm unfortunately and fortunately so keenly aware of like when someone is not all the way okay with something uh, it is a good quality but it is an exhausting one. Oh yeah that's hard i think you're the same way you're an empath <laughs> eyebrow raise <laughs> call it whatever you want i mean so are you for sure yeah i i know what you mean I and mean, i think the most difficult thing for my gender is when you pair being an empath Pairing being an empath and then this sort of feminine default that you culturally inherit, which is to to be pleasing, that can be hard because you can very easily understand what people want 
and then your gender upbringing reinforces the idea that you should then give it to them. That as a woman, part of your design is to take care of, to please. So I've had to do a lot of unlearning of that and, and be okay with not pleasing people. In fact, even upsetting people and that, that, that conflict is okay. How do you deal with that? As someone who is as genuinely good as I think you are, Oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> oh come on! If you're gonna if you're gonna be nice to me, I have to also be honest. I'm not, and I don't think I've been nice with nice. I just feel like I'm being honest. So am I. Okay. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> How do you deal with disappointing people? I guess recently I've been trying to see that as an okay emotion that like or it's necessary. A, necessary. There's a great book by a woman named Sarah Shulman called "Conflict Is Not Abuse." And she talks about this. We shouldn't shy away from conflict, that it is useful and that conflict isn't necessarily abusive, that you can have difficult, complicated dialogues with people where the beliefs are opposing or the wants are opposing and that that's okay. And learning to navigate those and not be afraid of them, Mm. learning to pick up the phone and call someone and tell them something you know they don't want to hear is really important rather than just like trying to send a text and like sort of skate out of it. So I'm trying to do that more often, but you have to, I have to really be willing to sit afterwards in the aftermath of that, which is the feeling of disappointing somebody or angering them or, and then you just have to take a few deep breaths and let it go and then possibly go get an ice cream. Ice cream? Yeah, sometimes. You mentioned the big questions and that we have to ask them. I wrote this down. I didn't write much down, but what I wrote down uh, is something you asked me in the first uh, exchange we had. And you said, this is a really wonderful question. You asked, and again, you do not know me at this point at all. This is when you were 19. Yes. We were doing our first interview together. No, no, no. This is, well, yes, but it's after the After that, yeah. Yeah. You said, what is your first memory of when you came to understand death? You asked me that. So now I'm giving it to you. (laughs) You know, I had a cousin, Tyler Johnson, who had a brain tumor when we were kids. We were very young. And he lived in Minnesota. And at the time, we were bouncing back and forth between Chicago and various places in Florida. So we didn't see each other all the time, but we saw each other enough. I would go with my mom and my sister and my dad, and we would spend time on their farm. They had a farm and a kind of horse ranch, and I learned to ride horses there. And he had a pigeon coop. He had trained all these pigeons to like fly away and come back. And he was a very sensitive, extraordinary person. Like one of those little kids that you meet where you're like, oh, they're still connected to wherever they came from. Like they have that in them. incandescent, who knows what it is. But he went through a lot of rounds of chemotherapy and he died when we were kids. And How old are you? Um, I must have been eight when I sort of developed an understanding of it. And I think probably around 10 when he passed away. And I think that was, yeah, that was huge. I mean, it was huge because I mean, I used to do sort of unusual things. Like I would I would go into my grandmother's basement and collect all of her old jewelry and break apart its like bits and baubles and 
make him, like I made him a medallion once that I was convinced as a token of my love would protect him from whatever he was fighting in his body. And I gave him this thing and he was a bit older than me. And so you can imagine being a young teenage boy and getting a medallion, getting a medallion and then having to wear it, you know, in the hospital, yeah. this like awful gaudy bobbled thing. And, but he wore it. Yeah. I couldn't believe that love couldn't protect people. That was such a hard thing to under, come to understand at that age, that people leave. And when they leave, that they really do go. And some part of them, of course, stays alive in your memory and your understanding of them and the way that they changed you. But that was very hard. At his funeral, they let some of, I remember just birds, like this flock of birds in the sky dispersing and thinking of his his pigeons. And I remember the magical thinking of that age. I was just like, oh, he's turned into this flock and he's just dispersing into the sky. And that was how I made sense of it at the time. And maybe even that's partially true. I think it changed a little bit how I live. I think because so early on, I understood that there were greater forces at play mm. and that no matter how beloved you were by your family or what a good person you were, that you could, you were here, you could be here one day and then you could just be gone and nobody could access you <laughs> wherever you go. And I think that that having that experience at a young age did make me feel like I had to live a life with real gusto, like that I had to always like double down on my bets and run faster and take in more like I had this sense that it was life was this like incredibly delicious thing that it was hard to realize how extraordinary it was how extraordinary it is when you're in it and how fast it goes maybe has it gone fast yeah I mean how old am I I'm like oh I'm like 36 now, I think. You're a child. I was born in 1982. I think I'm not 37. <laughs> no, I think I do sometimes think about that. Like, wow. Just a sense that there, that, that time is like a, a very, a very delicate and precious thing. And it's easy, I guess, in a day to begin to take it for granted when you like wake up in the morning and you've got 50 emails to do and you can enter a pattern, especially with hmm. at the pace technology is setting for us where it's easy to like get on the hamster wheel and run, 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 not get off. And That's what it feels like. It, it is. And then sometimes you have to just like take a big step back and be like, oh no, wow, just just the sunlight coming through this window and like falling on my hands while I'm doing the dishes and it's like warm soapy water and just that exercise is kind of extraordinary. It's moving so fast. Yeah. <laughs> At least my five years have moved so fast since we first talked. What do you do to slow it down? Sometimes this. Mm. Sometimes I don't slow it down. Mm. Sometimes I wish I could get faster. Why? Because I'm someone who I believe very much wants to arrive at a place. What do you think will happen when you get there? I won't be tidily. I mean, I want to go to a different place. 
<laughs> I know it's a fool's errand, Brett. I just I'm doing it. No, right? no, I know, but I'm, I'm just, doing the errand. I was asking genuinely. <laughs> maybe the place that you're going, you're gonna be so happy that when you're there, you'll just set up a tent and a little mm-hmm. fire pit and stay, roast marshmallows. I'll let you know how that goes. Invite <laughs> me over. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I part of it has to do with the fact that I was in this space at a young age, mm. and things went well really quick. Mm. And then, you know, you pivot a couple times and then things don't go as well. Mm. And then you have to wait. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think there's probably a part of me that just wants to make the things I want to make. And but don't you think that this is where all the good marrow comes from? I mean... This age? No, difficulty. Mm. Like, it's so... I think that's where so much of the the marrow, the like profundity of what to say it comes from the really trying times like i think if everything is easy if you like step out of college and land on the roller coaster and you're just constantly on it that seems to me difficult i feel like i learn very little from anything that i do that is perceived as a success i learn a lot more from the things i do that don't quite work Mm -hmm. when i hit a kind of like wall and then I have to like dig deeper and figure out, okay, well, what did I really mean to say? And, and how why, do you move forward? Why didn't it connect? Like, how can I build a better vessel for these ideas? How do I carry it all the way across? It's so much easier to learn from difficulty and get better than it is to, I mean, I, I don't read any, I don't read reviews of stuff. And I think that's, I have found that the praise is more damaging than even criticism, whether mm-hmm. the criticism is thoughtful or whether the criticism is snarky, you know, sort of either way. Damaging to you. Yeah, because I think it, I don't know, I just get the sense that doing well, right, doing something well or being told you're doing something well puts you in this kind of like bubble where you start to just, you're just like carried out, you're floating. It's mm-hmm. like you're you're isolated by it. And I feel like I'm always looking to pop the bubble and be try to be in be in the world you know you think you're doing a good job of that yeah in the sense that i live a very ordinary life and and i'm always looking for ways to try to like push myself out of my comfort zone and be in spaces i haven't been before but i mean honestly the last the last five years have been really tied up inside telling this story and so i think i'm really due for a a period of disappearing and mm. going to some other part of the earth and learning. I can see you processing. Right now? Yeah. I haven't had a chance to think much about myself, like to the point where you. I feel like you come out of these things and you're just trying to remember who that self is. And maybe the most dangerous thing is that to begin to think there was a self in the first place. I mean, mm. Sometimes I think personality is kind of an illusion. Like it's just the stories people have told you about who you are that you internalize and believe. And you're like, I act like this. Yeah. I'm funny. At I was thinking about this I- yesterday. I was thinking, you know, I feel like two years ago I was much more charismatic. Oh, interesting. And much more fun. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, maybe I was never actually those things. Well, or, or maybe we're like constantly shifting yeah, that's what, that's more accurate. I think that we need to tell ourselves that because we want to believe that like inside our families or like when we get married, that we're not marrying a stranger. But the truth is like, 
I think we're strangers to ourselves all the time. I think sometimes we recognize ourselves and sometimes we're very different. Like we're these, these beings that are constantly in flux, you know? Mm. I don't know that I have a single personality or personhood. I think that it's a, it's a shape shifting thing. So maybe that's my mistake of when I get off of a job and I've been playing a character for a while, I'm looking for Brit. Where's the Brit that I know? And maybe the, <laughs> the real answer is that like, Brit is a thing that is constantly in flux and like, you just gotta catch her wherever the wave is right now, I don't know. Is that okay? Maybe, yeah, I think it probably is, but maybe harder for us to imagine because our narratives don't really tell us that. Our narratives are about const, you know, consistent characters that are tested by external forces that meet them, meet them, meet them, rise to a conflict, climactic battle, denouement, you know, and they have changed, but they've changed in that they've become more themselves, yes. you know, or they've... Um, yeah, when you say it like that, it sounds so silly. It is a little... Like reductive. <laughs> it is a little reductive. I think maybe some of our reductive patterns in storytelling haven't really behooved us, mm. you know. The sun's coming in. We could wash dishes right now in this kitchen. That's actually the last thing I was going to ask you <laughs> about. No. It's such an odd time that this sort of confluence of we have not seen each other in years. And you are now on like day one of returning to solid ground or just ground. Forget the show. Okay. I kind of forgot the show a while ago, but I'll forget it again. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> just like person to person what do you want to do what do you want for yourself damn i love that question i would like to garden more i would like to i would like to learn how to properly grow vegetables out of the earth i'd like to learn to build a chair with like my hands and tools i'd like to take some time to read authors i have never read I would like to take some time to do some deep digging into original female myths before like those myths got co-opted by Christianity or, you know, other patriarchal ideas that changed those narratives. I'd like to like do a deep dig, archaeology kind of dig on, on myth making. Was there any female myth making? Like what? What were those? And what did it look like? What, was, what did it look like? What were those narratives? You know, I'd like to do something a little dangerous. <laughs> like, like fall in love or learn to be an acrobat or those are very different or like try, <laughs> a, try a form of dancing I've never done before where I like really properly humiliate myself on the first couple worlds around and then maybe hopefully eventually get a little better. I like to spend time with my family because I haven't spent time with family and friends for a while. I'd like to see if I can be of use in my community. Like the housing crisis in LA is insane. And I want to learn to be better involved on a local level. I'm, I'm sort of less interested in national 
international politics these days, which seems a little bit like a, like a halftime show, you know, then I, I am in like, what can I do in my community? What is the anonymous, mundane, day-to-day work of organizing that is actually going to change the way things, the deeply unglamorous, handmade movements that happen inside local small communities and that these shifts can lead to better things. I would like to spend time learning from, from great organizers um, being of use. I have some light bulbs in my house that I haven't changed because I just let them all go dark and then eventually I'm like down to a handful of lamps. And so I need to go to Home Depot, get some light bulbs, get a ladder and just start changing the light bulbs in the hard to reach places. Is that a metaphor? Yes. <laughs> Sam, I got to turn the lights on. Yeah. And it's about time. Yes. Well, well past. Um, this has been a joy. It really has been. Thank I, hope, you. I hope we, uh, I think we covered a lot. BJ Armstrong to light bulbs. I think there's <laughs> something in there. Britt Marlin, thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Special thanks this week to Narrative PR, Netflix, and Britt Marling. The second season of The OA will premiere on Netflix March 22nd. To find out more about the show and her, you can do so on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll find a back catalog of every episode we have done. You can also find all 128 episodes of this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Crystal Farmer, our booking is done by Ian Chang, our intern is Elliot Weintraub, the music is by Dylan Peck, and the show is produced by Alyssa Greenberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me, 
I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.